Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company again this Wednesday afternoon. It's just gone 11 minutes past two on this beautiful Highfield Winter's Day. And uh, great to be here and able to share some thoughts with you um, on Judaism 101.9. As um, we usually do, we look at the week ahead and see if scan it for any uh, possible events, things that we can talk about or that we need to discuss um, in the coming week. And, of course, there is such a date, dates coming up in the coming week that um, I would like to make the subtitle of uh, today's discussion. And they come up, in fact, on Monday and Tuesday of next week now. Perhaps not that broadly known, but um, with some very, very important messages. Um, there is a festival that is celebrated in the Chabad Hasidic community <coughs> that comes up on Monday and Tuesday next week, and it is known as Yud Beit and Yud Gimel Tammuz, the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz. And I'd like to explain to you or talk about what that is all about and perhaps to derive some of the very important uh, personal messages that um, actually come from dates like this and events of this caliber, not only for Chabad Hasidim, but uh, for everybody, for each and every one of us who uh, can and needs to learn some of the very important life lessons and uh, Jewish lessons that are gleaned from these important dates. So let's first discuss what the date actually represent. What happened? What's it truly all about? Well, if we go back actually to the beginning of um, in the last century, and that's in the secular calendar, of course, if we go back to the early 1900s, we know that at that time there were great upheavals that had taken place all over um, the um, eastern part of Europe um, during uh, the early part of the 20th century. Um, great upheavals in that it uh, was the demise of the Tsars and then eventually the, of course, the takeover by communism. And the fact is that it was a case of, I think it was a case of the, uh, what was worse, the frying pan or the fire from a Jewish point of view. My own grandfather served in the Tsar's army and uh, used to often relate to me as a child how um, this transition actually left them completely confused and uh, realizing that uh, no matter which side you were on, uh, things never got better, and particularly from a Jewish point of view because while many of the Jews were seen to have been involved with communism and so on and um, the uh, revolution that took place, of course, in uh, 1917, people thought that things were going to be completely different, that they would be better. But, um, in fact, a stranglehold was um, uh, all but tightened on the Jewish people at the time. And, of course, the... Um, obnoxious and uh, terribly demeaning kind of approach that was taken towards Judaism, towards Torah and Torah education at the time was uh, something that was, um, of course, um, historically very, very difficult for us to have dealt with. Under the Tsars, of course, 
There was the Russian church that was involved and um, everything that it came with under communism. It now became completely taboo to kind of have any uh, religion to speak of. And uh, they tried to make everything that everybody was equal. Of course, we know that some were more equal than others, but everybody was equal and everything had to be done in a way whereby uh, no preferential treatment could be shown to anybody. And uh, come to the fore, a leader of the Chabad Hasidic movement, and of course one of the four, one of the great lights of uh, uh, that generation of that time, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchok Schneerson, who was at the helm of Chabad um, in those years, and now um, comes to face off with the communists and their style or their requirements, rather, of uh, what Jewish education should actually be. And one of the principles that they really fought about or that they came to literally blows about uh, between the Rebbe and the um, uh, the leadership of uh, Russia at the time was uh, the point of children's education. One of the theories, of course, that they tried to propagate was, okay, you know, you can have your religion and your uh, spiritual practices and all of that stuff, but um, that can be for adults. When it comes to kids, when it comes to children's education, um, you can't indoctrinate children, and the children must be brought up open-minded. They must have uh, the ability to choose freely exactly what it is that they want, and therefore bring them up in this kind of environment where there is nothing that is offered or, in their way of looking at it, ram down their throats um, until they're much older, until they can make the choices of their own. If they want to then choose to be this way or that way, that's fine. But we've got to stamp out um, indoctrination and um, kind of – the uh, the concepts of a Torah education and so on for young kids that has to be completely completely off the uh, negotiating table <coughs> from the communist point of view and of course this was the antithesis to uh, what Jewish education is truly all about and uh, the concepts that were put forward or the proposals that were put forward or the actions that were put forward by the great leaders of the time and particularly the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was to um, really go um, full blazes um, into the programs of much more uh, Jewish education, much more children's education, much more involvement of uh, making sure that our kids now needed not only to be um, um, filled with what Torah and Judaism was all about, but they need to be inoculated against everything that communism was going to bring and that the the ways of the world uh, that they were living in at the time was going to bring, that had to be counteracted and that had to be thwarted. So we had to have a doubled-over effort at uh, basic Jewish education, particularly the education of kids. Well, um, for his uh, crimes against the uh, Russian government and the communists at the time, the Rebbe was arrested. He was um, um, tried, and of course, all sorts of shenanigans that went on there at the time. Eventually, a death penalty was actually uh, meted out to him. Um, he was pronounced to have to uh, be executed for the terrible, heinous crime of uh, disobeying the government and of trying to uh, push um, education for children against the government's wishes. By some strange miracles, the death sentence was commuted to life imprisonment. It was then changed once again, and it became exile 
um, and of course exile. Some for, for for many meant a certain death anyway. It was exile uh, to a far-flung barren place uh, where uh, he would be sent. And then by some strange, strange cycle of events, he was eventually released from that um, incarceration or that exile um, in a place called Kostroma in uh, Russia. Now, the, uh, the Rebbe himself was informed of this um, uh, commutation or this end of his sentence. He was informed of it on the 12th of Tammuz. In 1927, he was told on Yudbe Tammuz that he would be released. And in fact, because of the bureaucracy and because of the need for the paperwork and so on to have been done, he was physically actually only released on the 13th on the next day. And thus comes to the fore. Yudbeit and Yudgimel Tammuz, the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz, a date to behold and a date that warrants a lot more to be spoken about. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. The Jewish Community Survey of South Africa is live. You go to www.jcssa2019.co.za to sign up. This is a once-in-a-decade opportunity to participate in the Kaplan Center's national online survey. The survey is open to all Jewish adults 18 years and older living in South Africa. Your views are important and your participation essential for planning for the long-term needs of our community. Make time, participate, have your say. jccssa2019.co.za we continue our discussion <coughs> about Yud Beit and Yud Gimel Tammuz. Two dates coming up on Monday and Tuesday of next week. So Sunday night, Monday, Monday night and Tuesday of the coming week um, are the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz. And as explained before, the 12th of Tammuz was the day on which the previous Rebbe was told. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Hitzhok Schneerson, was told in 1927 of the fact that he was going to be released to absolute freedom and on the 13th the actual release took place. And so they are celebrated in the Hasidic community as being Chagei Gula, days or Yom Tifs of liberation, liberation dates. And uh, what is the relevance or what is the significance or how can we actually extrapolate this all and say, well, okay, this has a meaning for me too. And this is something that I could relate to and that I could be involved in, even if I may not be um, that involved in uh, studying all about uh, the Rebbe's or I may not hold myself to be a Chabadnik. I might not be a Lubavitcher card-carrying member for whatever or whatever that may mean, but what are the significances of these dates and how can we learn from them, particularly because this is Judaism 101.9 and we need to take messages that are applicable to each and every one of us. <clears throat> I think there are a number of significant messages, significant things that we could learn from, think about um, from this particular episode in uh, not that distant history. The first one is the concept of liberation. The concept of liberation per se is, of course, a very, very important theme in Judaism. But I think that perhaps when we think about it in terms of the way that it's usually described, when we're talking about getting out of Egypt, we know that there were great miracles and we know that there were great wonders and the whole Jewish people walked out together. And there was all sorts of um, <coughs> visual uh, perceptions of the hand of God and so on. 
And we were on a definite mission to get somewhere. We were on our way to Mount Sinai. We were going to receive the Torah. We were about to become uh, this uh, people that were chosen to keep God's uh, mitzvot and learn his, study his Torah and bring it to the world. And uh, there was a great um, theory there of liberation, redemption, as well as the target of what that redemption was actually all about. When we think about a more down-to-earth kind of a liberation, think about people who are imprisoned and think about the uh, moment of liberation, the moment, first of all, that they're told that they're going to be liberated, and then that actual liberation when it actually takes place and they're actually redeemed. Now, I think that um, just because I have a little bit of knowledge of uh, the um, people being in prison, being that I am have been for many years a prison chaplain, there are certain psychological impacts that um, th- that that take place on individuals as well as on their families as well as on, on people who knew them and then people who are going to come into contact with them afterwards when somebody has been incarcerated. The incarceration of an individual in a prison kind of an environment has a huge impact both on the individual who's incarcerated and of course on family and friends and then society in general. There are certain stigmas attached to it. There are certain difficulties um, that are involved with um, the whole process and everything that goes with it. But let's focus our attention, if we may, on the concept of when a person's freedom is taken away from them and then when the freedom is returned to them. Um, people very often in a uh, prison environment become a little bit institutionalized. They start thinking of and uh, working in the way of the prison, of the imprisonment. Well, we have it on a regular basis for anybody who knows anything about certainly what goes on in our local prisons. They're really, really harsh and difficult and uh, very, very difficult for people to get along in um, in any manner or form. And um, people become conditioned to that kind of a way of life. It is quite amazing how the human being can adapt, how people adapt to that kind of an environment and very quickly become part of it. And therefore, for instance, if um, uh, the uh, trade is uh, is uh, or the, the the currency of trade is cigarettes, um, it very quickly becomes the, the focus and the target of how many cigarettes you can get, how quickly you can trade with them, how quickly you can get them in, whether legally or illegally. And you learn a uh, smuggler's mentality and a mentality of trying to get away with certain things. And if it's not found on you, well, uh, then you don't have it. And there are all sorts of things. In fact, it's always fascinated me that, um, in fact, there is a whole subculture within a prison environment where all the people start talking the same. Kind of their programming becomes that way and the way they pronounce things and the accents start to to change. It's quite an amazing uh, phenomenon. But then when a person is finally told that he is going to be released, um, there is a certain euphoria and, believe it or not, a tremendous trepidation. There are a lot of people and uh, several uh, ex-prisoners have told me that the idea of um, getting out of prison was one that was really, really daunting, especially when the sentence has been rather long. And then 
the adaptation afterwards is really, really difficult to just pretend like nothing happened and get back to your old life. Well, it doesn't happen. Uh, we're talking about the real world. People are judgmental. Um, the whole society has moved on. You've been stuck behind. Um, you are behind on all sorts of things and possibly may have lost a job or lost a business or maybe even said goodbye to part of your family and so on. And there is a tremendous difficulty that a lot of people have in getting back into it, expressed to me once by a prisoner who had been in prison for a fairly lengthy period of time who said that he believed that his sentence didn't begin on the day that he was sentenced, but it actually began on the day that he got out. Now, imagine thinking like that. Imagine having that kind of – it's not something that we would often, I suppose, uh, give a thought to. But my sentence began, he said, on the day that I was released from prison. That's when the sentence began. Now, <coughs> when the previous rebbe came out of um, his incarceration – there was uh, no such thing. There was nothing like that. On the contrary, what happened was um, a completely dynamic and renewed um, energy to uh, make sure that everything that he had stood for and that he had wanted to accomplish before was now a redoubled effort to con not only to continue where you left off, but actually to make it even greater because of the imprisonment. The idea of liberation from a Jewish point of view should be Exactly that, that when one is redeemed, when we are released of something, when we have um, now a brand new lease on life, so to speak, the opportunities that present themselves need to be not only grabbed now with both hands, but um, grabbed and embraced and, uh, and, uh, and held with both hands, but also made much greater, realizing that um, we kind of have to not only make up for the lost time, but we also have... A, uh, a gratefulness that we have to be thankful to the Almighty for having released us from that environment and now enabled us to not only uh, see light where there was darkness, hope where there was um, an absolute lack of any possibility of hope, but that everything is now turned into a brand new opportunity and a brand new uh, uh, chance for us to actually achieve so much more and in a much bigger and grander scale than ever before. So the uh, yes, we have the valid argument that uh, the Rebbe knew that he was being incarcerated for um, the highest and loftiest goals. This was not a, a normal person, perhaps, who has to deal with the fact that he's been found guilty of an actual crime, whether heinous, whether menial, whether, whether small, whatever it is, and where other people have suffered a loss and where society just wants to punish you and so on. This is someone who went to prison, so-called, for the highest ideals. But the concept, and let's pause the clock at that moment of being told that you're liberated brought about in him a great and tremendous relief, release, and an idea of the fact that now he was being redeemed in a way whereby he could achieve and accomplish so much more. Imagine then focusing on the moment that he actually walks out of that imprisonment. And very often, person walking out of prison 
is uh, kind of blinded by the glare of the light. Well, uh, you know, they've been in a dark place and now the light is so bright and that light can be really, really blinding when a person is now returned to regular society after having had a uh, lockup and so on. I don't think anybody, unless somebody has been there and seen it, can really relate to what it actually means to be locked in, to be locked in for the night. And you've got to know in a normal prison, uh, lockup takes place in the middle of the afternoon and they only opened again early in the morning. This idea of being Locked in of not having the possibility of getting out of uh, being absolutely uh, closed in from all sides is terribly, terribly pressuring uh, psychologically. If anybody is uh, claustrophobic, if you are, uh, if you don't like being on top of other people, if you don't like um, having um, all the uh, all of these uh, freedoms taken away from you, it is terribly, terribly enclosing, and the, the walls just get closer and closer and closer, and it becomes more and more difficult for one to actually function. But the idea of that all now suddenly disappearing can for some be, um, they, they might want to overdose on it. It becomes so huge and so big that um, they actually can't cope with it. And therefore, very often, people coming out of prison um, battle with uh, dealing with it. But imagine here, knowing that you went into prison for the highest ideals, that you had done nothing criminally um, actually wrong, and then, then being released by all sorts of wonders and miracles, and then actually walking free, how that Revelation not only became and was taken in a personal fashion, but being that the Rebbe was a great leader of uh, the Jewish people at that time and had many Hasidim, many followers, um, the euphoria of that moment of liberation um, had, was, was threaded through everybody and became celebrated by communities out there. And eventually, eventually, yes, became... The fact that the entire world looked at this um, liberation as being something tremendously significant, not only in the Jewish world, but in fact it marked a certain turning point in the secular world as well, that um, to the extent that suddenly there seemed to be a complete uh, turnaround in the way that uh, people looked at uh, <coughs> great figures who've gone to prison for uh, for for their for their beliefs or for their uh, religious uh, persuasions and so on, and all of a sudden this whole concept, this whole notion of that sort of liberation uh, came to the fore as well, and therefore it came with a tremendous surge of energy and a tremendous surge of um, a need to do more and a need to explode in your activities for the good, way way beyond um, what you were actually doing, performing, and being involved with before. It was not not for one moment thought of as well. Um, you know, we better be careful now because you could be arrested and you could go to jail for uh, doing this. No, it became the very impetus and the very f uh, um, um, concept of um, that now there was an exoneration and that now there was not only an exoneration and a liberty and a freedom, but actually an injection of a brand new uh, push to make sure that the activities for Jewish education, for Torah study, for the performance of mitzvot throughout Eastern Europe and, in fact, throughout the whole world had a brand new impetus, a whole new push, and it was all born out of these dates, the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz, which occur next week. Be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz.
A second point that I'd like to discuss with you is the point of why it was that the Rebbe was incarcerated in the first place, as we mentioned before, and that was really for promoting education and particularly Jewish education for Jewish children, where a government was was uh, really telling him and telling uh, Jewish educators that um, you needed to leave children until a certain age and when they would be able to choose for themselves the kind of path that they wanted to take in life um, and so on. Of course, the age-old argument of um, giving children this absolute sort of free choice, which, of course, we know from a Jewish point of view is absolute nonsense because from a Jewish point of view, the uh, time, the best time of learning is uh, for a child is uh, when they are tiny tots, when they are small, where it becomes not only habitual, but it becomes something that is um, in, engraved in uh, the child. This is the very, very um, symbol of the fact, in, f- in fact, that we even give a child a bris at age um, eight days old um, in order to ensure that our adherence to godliness, to Torah, to mitzvot, is not something that is necessarily dictated by reason but rather something that is dictated by our connection with God, our soul um, kind of connection, which supersedes reason, which goes way beyond it. And, of course, um, there was no way in the world that uh, Jews anywhere could and should argue away uh, Jewish education from a very, very young age. On the contrary, we should be thinking about all the other things that children are taught at a young age that may not be as necessary as a Torah education, and therefore those things should perhaps be negotiated and shelved and only studied at a later stage. But everybody understands that you need to teach a child from an early age how to add one plus one, and you need to teach a child how to pronounce and how to speak and how to read and how to write. The uh, um, Jewish point of view is that your soul comes first, your Judaism comes first, your Torah comes first. All the other stuff uh, can seriously come at a later stage. And, of course, this is something that the Rebbe fought for and um, therefore went to jail for, um, for standing up for Jewish education for children at a young age. And if we think about it then, um, perhaps in honor of Yud Beit, Yud Gimel Tammuz, we need to redouble our efforts like the Rebbe did when he came out of prison to redouble the efforts for children's education, particularly for ensuring that kids get the finest Jewish education when they're small. And we're talking about from tiny tots, from literally from the age of birth or even before that. All the way through, um, right up until uh, they are really able to make their own decisions, but make their own decisions based on a true Jewish education that they have that's ingrained within them, that they really understand what it is that God wants from them in a, uh, in a, in a worldly kind of an environment. We often misinterpret the concept of freedom. And even if we go back to Egypt, we think of liberation, getting out of Egypt. We think of all of that in terms of that we were liberated from there. And that means that now we can choose and we can do anything that was never part of God's plan. God plan was always, as Moshe Rabbeinu kept on presenting it to Pharaoh, send away my people that they may serve me. God was always and always had the uh, uh, proposal that 
Jewish freedom can only really be when we are free from the pressures of an Egyptian world or a Babylonian world or a German world or a um, a, a, a Marxist world when we're freed from those kind of, of 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 restrictions on our souls on our Judaism. That is the kind of freedom that we are trying to um, get or gain for our people, whether we're getting out of Egypt or we're getting out of communist Russia or wherever it was. This was the kind of freedom that we were really looking at, a freedom to do, a freedom to serve Hashem, a, a freedom to be much more connected with our Torah, with our Yiddishkeit, with our mitzvot, and the ability to perform all of those things, that was the kind of freedom that we were pushing for and that we needed and that we still need today. And therefore, to redouble our efforts in honor of Yud Beit and Yud Gimel Tamuz in making sure that our children have the right Jewish education. And Jewish education is not only education in schools. That's only a part of it. Big part of Jewish education, if you think about it, most of our education really takes place at home. Jewish education, too, needs to be in the home, in the home environment, in the shul environment, in the school environment, in all of these environments, making sure that our children are really brought up as free Jews, as free Jewish children. That's what the the Rebbe kept on pushing for. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. One of the major innovations or ideas conveyed by the Lubavitcher Rebbe's over a period of many, many, ta- many, many years, many decades, and particularly the previous Rebbe and our own Rebbe, was the idea of the fact that we really have a role to play in the broader community, that we have a role to play in each other's lives and not only in our own. Um, really they took away the concept or the notion that you could live a life that was really only about you. You needed to interact with others. Now, not everybody is geared up for this. Not everybody is um, um, a kind of an outreach sort of a person. Not everybody is involved or can involve themselves in uh, um, interpersonal relationships. And some people perhaps feel that they need to be a little bit more withdrawn. Um, and at lo- as long as they're looking after number one, as long as we're looking after ourselves, that that is really the be all and end all of their Judaism. And the rabbis of Chabad never really uh, bought into that or accepted that. In fact, they wanted to change that dramatically from the way that people were thinking. You know, as long as I'm learning Torah, I'm okay, um, was not good enough. The idea of having to have a program whereby, yes, you need to learn Torah, and yes, you need to do your mitzvot, and yes, you need to be the living example, but your major job and your major role is to, in, is to bring it to others, to share it, to give that Torah over to other people, to enable other people to do mitzvot, to enable the whole world to be elevated and everybody to learn something from what Torah and Judaism has to offer. This was really the grand innovation of the Rebbe's of Chabad. And, of course, played out then when we think about Yud Beit and Yud Gimel Tammuz. If we think about it, the first date, the day of the Rebbe being told that he would be released from imprisonment, was the day on which he himself, and probably and possibly only he himself and the few in his close orb, uh, got to hear about the fact that there was a redemption at all. And at that moment, that redemption meant that he himself was redeemed. But the next day, when that uh, redemption took place, Everybody started to feel the ripple effect of it. There is something about that image that needs to be conveyed and needs to be brought into each and every one of our lives. It is okay for you to be free. But what are you doing with that freedom for other people? It's okay for you to be 
um, riding on the crest of the wave. But what about the world around you? You cannot and you may not and you dare not be focused only on your own ways and your own things and your own life and your own environment and your own involvement. It needs to be something that becomes a shared uh, profile and a shared project and something whereby you are involving other people and you are enabling other people and you are sharing with other people and in that way you're redeeming other people as well. The redemption cannot be personal. It cannot only be personal. It cannot be alone. A personal redemption and a personal mode of redemption needs to be brought to others as well. And this the Rebbe spelt out in um, action much more than in words, but in words as well, um, throughout his lifetime and throughout the time that followed those fateful days in 1927 of Yud Beit and Yud Gimel the 12th and the 13th of Tammuz. So in honor of that, please God, in the coming days, we too will think about how much we have to share with others, how much we have to give to others, and how much our lives need to be turned from being uh, egocentric, um, centered around just ourselves, to be spread out and to be enabling others um, as well. And in addition to that, how much are we doing for the education of children, not only our own, but uh, the ch- others' children, everybody's children, in order to really build a much better environment, a much better society, and a much better world for us all to benefit from and enjoy. Please, God, we'll be able to accomplish just a fragment, of a little bit of this, and we'll be doing a lot better than we were before. So looking forward to being back with you again, same time, same place, next week on Judaism 101.9. This is Rabbi Michael Katz wishing you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead, and remember those beautiful days of Yudbet Yudgimel Tammuz that are coming up Monday and Tuesday next week. Take care.